Let me pray for us and we'll look at this passage together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this night. Um, Thanks for the end of a good semester. And um, I pray that you would meet us tonight uh, in the last part of Romans chapter 8. That you you would surround us with the good news that you are a good God. And you are big and you love deeply. And um, I pray for those of us tonight that need to hear that, that you would um, apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When I was growing up in Duncan, Oklahoma, my brothers and I uh, were what you would probably, by all accounts, call pyromaniacs. Uh, We loved gunpowder and things that you could do with gunpowder and... uh, and chemistry. <laughs> and my dad was in the oil business, so we also had access to pipes. So we would make pipe bombs for fun. And um, it's a true story. And uh, so, but we just had a fascination with fireworks and gunpowder and everything. And, and when I say that we loved fireworks, I mean that we would drive hours and hours and hours to go to the best fireworks shows. And as anyone who loves fireworks uh, knows, you know, the first part of the show is fine and, and maybe entertaining, but what you're there for is the grand finale, right? You're there for when, you know, for five or ten solid minutes, they are just going off from everywhere, and it's loud and it's bright and people are cheering and it's amazing. It's all about the grand finale. This passage tonight in Romans is the grand finale. Now, it's not to say that everything that's come before has not been important and beautiful and important and awesome. It has. But Paul, in this passage, is kind of bringing the first half of Romans, from Romans 1 through 8, he's bringing it to a close. And it is not this kind of close. It is this. He is holding up all of the beauties of the gospel in their fullness and richness and saying, this is the goods, y'all. This is it. And so what I'm going to do tonight is we're going to, I'm going to read a part of it here on the front end, and then I'm going to talk about it, and then we're going to read the second half of it toward the end and talk about it for a few minutes. But this is Paul's crescendo. This is the climax for him of the gospel. And so let's look right there, starting at verse 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now look, We could spend a whole semester on those three verses right there. And that's not an exaggeration. These are some of the richest, most deepest, precious words in all of the Bible. And so what I'm going to do is spend 30 minutes on them. Okay? So it's a little bit of an injustice, but that's what we got. And what I'm going to do is simply just take what Paul's given us, and I'm going to tell you about how amazing God is for the next 30 minutes. Here we go. God is big. God is big. One of the ways that Paul uh, wants us to, to understand that in these verses, to understand God's his magnificence and His beauty, is by seeing and by showing us how big He is. And he does that in this passage in a couple of ways. But this is the same idea of some people might say that God is sovereign. Okay, and that just means that he is, he's ruling and reigning over the things that are happening in this world. He is big and he's in control. 
So in verse uh, 28, Paul starts out by saying, and we know. Okay, now that kind of makes you think, well, what's he talking about? What do we know? Um, That's him saying everything I've written to this point, the first uh, seven and a half chapters lead to this right here. So this is the climax. We say, and we know that God works all things together. And when he says that, he has most in mind what's come right before it. And the thing that we talked about last week is, is Paul saying, look, God is even at work in your life in the midst of tremendous suffering. That when things are at their worst and you are wondering, God, where are you? Paul's saying he is there in that. He's there in the bad and the good, but he is definitely there in the bad, and that's when we need to be reminded of that, because we're tempted to think that he's nowhere to be found, that God is there in the midst of that. So he's saying that God works all things together, and we can know that. Good things, hard things, uh, uh, sad things, mundane things. And what that means is that this world is not a series of random events. And further, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who has identified yourself with Christ and said, I'm with Him, I'm following Him, then everything is working for your good. All things are being orchestrated and controlled by God for the good of His people. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But that means that all things, God is big, He's sovereign, and He's powerful. Um, how many of y'all saw the movie Inception a, a few years ago? Maybe it's been four or five years ago. Yeah, of course, everyone. If you haven't, that's your job for next week at Thanksgiving. Um, before Inception, about 10 or 15 years ago, was a movie called The Sixth Sense. How many of y'all have seen The Sixth Sense? M. Night Shyamalan, beautiful, brilliant movie. Not beautiful, it's brilliant. It's kind of dark. Um, but it's the same kind of movie. It's one of those movies when you get to the end and you see the climax and you see the plot unfold in its fullness... It kind of causes you to start looking back on the rest of the movie and reinterpreting all the events. Or maybe you just go ahead and, and do the deed and you rewind it and you watch it again. Rewind it. We used to have these things called VCRs and you would have to rewind them. <laughs> you just click start over. Um, and so you turn around, you rewatch it, but knowing the ending and how it all kind of comes, you then begin to reinterpret all the events. So in this passage, when Paul's saying that God is working all things out, what that means for you if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, is that you can begin to look at your life and say, you know, that thing that felt really random and bizarre, it wasn't. And and sometimes you may be able to even trace out why and how that wasn't random. And and you may see the direct connection with something in your life right now and why that matters. You may not be able to do that or you may not be be able to do that yet. But Paul is saying we can trust God in this. We can take this to the bank. There is nothing happening in your life that is random and that doesn't have a purpose. God is big and he's using all of those things. And so let's just bring this down really close for us for a minute. Um, Your loneliness is not just some aberration. It's not meaningless. In that, God may be, he may be weaning you off of other people and and the comforts that you have in them to try and get you to find your fullest comfort in him. 
your uh, being broken up with or breaking up this week, that is not without meaning. Right now, it may just be uh, utterly sad and, and devastating, or, or maybe that was a semester, or whatever. Like, we look at that, and we just think, oh, and we want to get mad, and we think it, it doesn't have meaning and purpose to it. But the promise is that it does. That God is using that. What about um, when you sat there, uh, and everyone else was, was talking about that girl, and maybe you even joined in with them, or that guy, and, and you joined in, you started talking about it too, And then they walked in, that person walked in and they knew that you were talking about them. And you saw that look on their face. And in that moment you realized, I never want to do this again. Because that really hurt that person. See, God doesn't waste things. He doesn't waste moments. He doesn't waste events in the lives of His people. He's using all things. He's big. He's sovereign. He's working all these together for good. Last week when you made a 31 on that test that you studied for, God's in that. We don't know what it looks like yet, but He's there. For me... When I look back over the course of my life and I see some of the things that I'm I'm most ashamed about, um, which have hurt others, which have been destructive to me and and certainly not glorifying to God, I can look back at these things and say, God was using that. He's even still using it presently as I get to talk to y'all about some of these things. Do I want to go back and redo them? No, it was awful. Am I excusing my behavior? I'm not at all. It was terrible. Has God used it? Yes. The Puritans um, did a lot of weird things, but they said some really brilliant things. And one of the, the things the Puritans would say is that God uses sin sinlessly. That God is not the author of sin. He doesn't cause sin. He's not um, um, the, the source of evil, but, but He is big enough to even use awful things Together for good. God is big and we can rest in Him. And and I want to say just this little thing. This is actually categorically different from that little phrase that sometimes we say or we hear others say that, you know, it's like when everything just sucks, everybody kind of throws their hands up and is like, well, everything happens for a reason. Like, that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not just saying we've got to throw our hands up and give it away to fate and, you know, somehow, some way, some, some. No, God is specifically interested in His people and working things out for their good. This isn't just a blind fate and a sense of whatever will be, will be. God is intentionally, specifically doing things for you if you're in Christ. God is good and He's big. He's big. Secondly, He's good and He's doing good things. Now, if you look at the next part in this passage... um, God is, it doesn't actually say that God is good. It doesn't come out and say that. So I'm cheating a little bit. Uh, But what it does say is that for all who love God, for those who love God, all things are working together for good. Now, we know because of what Paul said elsewhere that he's not just saying that all things are out there just kind of mysteriously working for good. He's saying God is doing good through all these things. 
And God does good because God is good. It's, it's who He is, and so that's what He does. In order for us to understand this passage, uh, what the good is, I want us to look at it in two ways, and they're up there behind me. Um, first is I want us to look at um, the purpose of the good. Sorry, or the people of the good. Let me do the people of the good first and the purpose of the good. Um, the people of the good means this, that, that Paul says that all things are working together for good. And, and great, that's awesome and wonderful. How many of you all saw the Lego movie? I love that song. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool if you're part of the team. Right? Um, that's actually what Paul's saying. Kind of. He's saying that God is promising that for those who are in Christ, for those who are trusting in Jesus and and trying to follow Him, that God is actually working all things together for your good. This means that, that if you are not in Christ and your life feels chaotic, that it's not going to make sense until you come into Christ. Because this promise isn't for you yet. That if you'll come to Christ, you'll begin to see how everything was indeed working together for the good and for your good. Okay, so how do we think about this? Um, How is God doing all this? Verse 29 through 30. Who are the people of the good? For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. He right there is Jesus. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Look, Paul answers the question of who are the people of the good by pulling back the curtain on salvation. He's saying, I'm going to tell you who those people are by pulling it back and telling you how salvation works. And the way that salvation works is that God, um, God has predestined a certain people to be His. And those whom He predestines, He calls effectually to be His children. And those people hear the call of the gospel and He justifies them. He makes them right with God. And those whom He justifies, He carries on to the end and glorifies. And as some of you just like blacked out because I said predestination... Come back with me for just a minute. Predestination is a Bible word. It's in there. We have to make sense of it somehow. And Paul right here is just laying it out for us. He's saying, what God begins, He finishes. That God predestines a people to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And those whom He predestines, He carries all the way through to the end. Now, I'm not going to camp out there for any longer than that. If you want to know more about that and the inner workings of all this, I teach a class, a Bible study on it every semester called Election, Predestination, Free Will, Calvinism, Arminianism. I changed the name to be relevant. Um, so whatever it is, I'll teach it next semester. Come and, and, and sit in there and consider it, um, disagree with it, whatever. That's fine. Um, but the purpose is this. That God's goodness and His good purposes are intended for and are being carried out in the lives of His elect people, the church. The capital C church, that only He knows who truly is in it. That everything that is happening in the world is for the good of His elect people. Now, 
There's two things that this, uh, there's one thing this means and one thing this doesn't mean. One thing that this means is that, um, what, what just happened? That you are not at the center of your world. Coming back, coming back, there we are. Um, you are not at the center of your world. Now, why is that good news? Why in the world would I stand up here and say that? Because you're, you need to know that your personal individual happiness is not God's grand, total, big picture, end game thing. Does he love Brent Corbin? Yes, and I'm grateful for it. Has he promised me that everything in my life is going to be awesome and I will always be happy because I'm following Jesus? No. Has he promised me that he is working through all kinds of things for the good of his people? Yes. And some of us really do need to hear that because we're disappointed with God or we've been following him for a while and we're wondering why aren't things better yet or how come um, my aunt just passed away or how come, um, you know, this thing just happened or how come I'm failing chemistry again? Like, we need to hear that God is, he loves us, but he's less concerned with our individual happiness than he is with our corporate holiness, with our being made to be more like Jesus. When I was thinking about this, uh, I remember being uh, with Sarah a few years ago. It's been seven years ago now. We were in New York City on January 3rd, and it was terribly cold. It was awful. Um, And we stood outside on the very first day. We had just uh, flown into LaGuardia or some other airport, I think LaGuardia, and we were taking the subway to our hotel or to my cousin's apartment, and we were at a certain stop. It It was a big stop. I can't remember if it was Union Station or another one, but there was part of it that was outside And we were out there waiting. It was 10 degrees, and the wind was blowing. And I could see our train right over there. And I knew that that's the train we needed to get on, but it wasn't coming any closer. It was just sitting there. And I was getting mad, and I was getting impatient because, like, my eyes are starting to glaze over from frostbite, and, you know, Sarah's dying over there. It wasn't fun. And I was getting mad and impatient. But here's what I didn't know. I didn't know that there were like three other trains that were halfway in. You know, I I wasn't standing up in the control tower seeing all of the chaos that was happening. They knew what was going on. I didn't. I saw it on a ground level. They saw it from up above. Look, y'all, you are going to feel like and there are going to be times in your life when it is chaotic and you can see the thing that you want to happen right there And yet you're not going to be able to get there or God is going to keep it from happening for some reason. And you may get frustrated or whatever, but here's what you have to know is that God is, he's in the control tower. He knows what he's doing. He's not making mistakes in your life and in the whole. And so we can begin to calm down a little bit and to rest in who he is and what he's doing and how he's ordering all these things together. So is God good? Yes. Can I trust him? Can I trust the one who's in charge? That's an everyday decision for us. He gives us reason to trust him, but faith is the act of trusting him. The second thing in here that that we learn is that the the thing this doesn't mean is that we have to call bad things good. That is not what, when when Paul says that God is working all things together uh, for good, he's not saying that everything is good. 
the thing that happened to you when you were six was not good. And that you're still having nightmares about that was not good. Your parents' divorce was not good. Your addiction and obsession with looking at yourself and trying to perfect yourself to death, that is not good. That's a sad thing. The, the sin issues that we're giving into in various ways, those things are not good. We can't start looking at bad and just like have to put this Christian gloss on it and say, well, Paul says that it's all supposed to be good, so I guess it's good. It's not. The Bible gives us categories to say we need to call bad things bad and know that God is even using bad for His ultimate good. But that does not mean that we have to call sin good. And actually, I say that to free you up. Some of you have been burdened with this pressure to just always act like you're fine and that somehow it's unchristian or less Christian to actually mourn and be sad about the parts of your life that are very broken in which um, things that have been done to you that you just kind of had to gloss over because your family or your social sphere, whatever it is, has made you think you can't go there and you can't be sad about that. No. The Bible is saying you can be sad about that. And it's also saying that as awful as that thing was, or as hard as it was, or as sad as it was, that it is not purposeless. That God has a purpose in it. So what is the purpose Paul answers that, um, that question by, by talking about the end goal of what he's doing. And what is the end goal of what he's doing right there? He says, those whom God foreknew, which is not say God looked down the corridor of time and knew what was going to happen, so then he made the decision. Foreknew means that those whom he foreloved, he predestined. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified or saved. And those whom He saved, He glorified. The purpose of God saving you is so that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. It says it right there. So they will be conformed to the image of His Son. And that makes sense. That actually makes sense of your suffering. Because guess what Jesus did? He suffered. His life sucked in some real, tangible, awful ways. It really wasn't good. And so, if you're following Jesus, you will suffer. Your life will not always be pretty, and you need to acknowledge that and call it that. And that means that through that thing, God is making you more like Jesus. So the purpose then is for you to be conformed to Jesus. Um, Many of you, again, I have heard me talk through the years or maybe just through our sitting down down together um, about some of my personal struggles, whether um, it's pornography or just relationship craziness that that was much of my life or gambling or alcohol or any number of things that I've struggled with. I try not to to just be a closed-off person to you. I try to share in appropriate ways. And, um, again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not proud of any of these things. I'm, I'm really not. But I can honestly say that as the Lord has, um, has made me to be more like Jesus, i got a long way to go, y'all, long way. But um, if you would have known Brent 10 years ago, you wouldn't have wanted to be around him. And so, like, in some ways, he's actually changing me for good. And so, right here at 35 years old, I can look back and say that all of that other stuff, 
He is using it for good as he's conforming me to be more like Jesus. And so you, at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, as you are making decisions and doing things, as you're trying to follow Jesus, even in your failures, God is conforming you to be more like Jesus. Does that mean we go on and fail the more so that he has like more material to work with? No. <laughs> right? Paul's already answered that. Do we go on sinning? No. But you're not a lost cause. And the things that you think you've done that are too much, that's not biblical. It's not too much. God can work with who you are. There's a purpose in the good. Finally here, God is loving. Paul then goes and says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is praying for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. What makes this picture of God's love so amazing and such a fitting capstone to all that Paul has said is where Romans began. Some of y'all were here at the beginning of the semester. Some of you weren't. That's fine. Um, Paul begins this letter to the church in Rome in a really dark place. For like the first three chapters, he is building up this heat pile of, of what sin is and what sin has done. And in chapter 1, what Paul is, is saying is that when God, God has created us in his image and mankind universally looked to God and said, no thanks, I'm, I want to do my own thing. And so God responds to that, Paul says, by giving us up. And he's like, okay. Like, if you want to live a life apart from me and try to make sense of this world, navigate it on your own, I'm going to give you up to go do that. So three times in Romans 1, it says that God gave him up, gave him up, gave him up. And then he starts to unpack that, and he says, look, but God didn't just leave it there. He didn't just give man up. Jesus entered the picture, and he became a substitution for man. Right? And then chapter 3 is all about this, this transaction. Of this is how bad it gets, but, but, but there is a righteousness available to you through faith in Christ. And in chapter 5, Paul is saying, look, Jesus is the second Adam, and where the first Adam screwed it up for everyone. Jesus comes and makes it right, and then chapter 6 is saying, so what do we do now? Do we keep sinning? No. Chapter 7 is like, yeah, but you're going to keep sinning some, and you're going to struggle a lot. Chapter 8 started and says, and you'll even suffer But here it gets to the end and says, look, yes, God gave man up to do whatever he was going to do. But in the end, that's not the last person who's given up. Look right there in verse 37. Sorry, verse 32. 
It says that how uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave Jesus up fully and finally instead of fully and finally giving you up to what you deserve. And so look, let's, let's make this very real and practical for us right now. Some of you are here and you're convinced that God is holding out on you. That God hasn't quite shown Himself to you fully or He's, he's not done the thing that you wanted Him to do. And you're thinking, if God was really loving, if He really loved me, then I would have a boyfriend right now. Or I wouldn't be so lonely and I'd have a girlfriend right now. Or if God really loved me and if He really was good, then I wouldn't be flunking chemistry. If God was really loving, then I, I would know what I was doing after I graduated. Or if God was really loving, then Donald Trump wouldn't have gotten elected. If God was really loving, then I wouldn't have been abused back then. Or if God was really loving, then my parents would still, still be together. Or what is it for you? If God was really loving, then what? What is the thing in your life or the things that you're saying... If God really was a good and loving God, then this thing wouldn't have happened or I would have this thing. What Paul is saying unequivocally in this passage is this. It may be true that you don't have that thing that you want or think you want or need. But the reason that you don't have it cannot be because God doesn't love you. And the way that Paul reasons through this and he says, look... God already gave what was most precious to Him. He already emptied the bank for you. Like There literally is nothing more that God could do to show you that He loves you and to evidence that He's already given Jesus. And so whatever it is that you don't have or however it is you think that God's holding out on you, the reason is not because He doesn't love you. You may not know what that reason is. I don't know what that reason is. Maybe in time some things will make sense as you see the good start to be worked out in you and around you. But at the heart of this good news that Paul is saying, and he's trying to get his readers to get, and, Paul, and God is trying to get us to understand, is that God really does love us. It's not arbitrary. It's not fickle. It's not shallow. It is deep, and it is personal, and it is familial. Last spring, um, I'm going to close this door. Last spring, I was at home one night uh, by myself, or maybe the kids were down, Sarah wasn't there. I just remember I was on the couch um, alone, and uh, I, I, a friend had recommended a podcast to me, and so I was sitting on the couch by myself listening to this podcast, and it was a story about um, a couple that uh, they had received adoption papers. They'd been trying to adopt a little girl from China, and they re- received adoption papers, you know, a while back. And the process just takes forever. If you've ever known anybody that tries to adopt internationally, it's just painstakingly long. And and they got the papers, and they got a picture of their daughter, named, uh, and they named her Natalie. And the time was there for them to go pick up Natalie. And so they they book their flights. They get on the flight, uh, arrive in Shanghai, and then drive to this small town where the where the orphanage was. And when they showed up and finally saw Natalie and and held her and hugged her and all of that, they noticed either through feeling on her shirt, I'm not exactly sure how it went down, but they noticed that she had this this huge scar on her back. 
And so they, you know, they kind of pulled up her shirt and were looking. You know, it was an awful scar. I mean, like a, an ugly scar in a way that it shouldn't be there. And so they, they kind of started to inquire, like, hey, what's going on? Like, y'all told us that she was healthy. And, and there's a part of the process where you can select, do I, you know, am I willing to take a child that has um, special needs or med- needs medical attention, or do I want a healthy baby? And, and the couple was just talking about it very frankly. They said, you know, we're not really that couple who feels like we, we have the bandwidth to do the, the special needs child. And so we checked the box for a healthy kid. And, like, that's what they thought they were getting. And, and so when they see this girl who's got this huge scar, they say, we need to talk to a doctor. And so they called the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, yeah, I need you all to come to the hospital. Grief. So, the, so they go to the hospital, and through a translator or talking to this doctor, and he says, yeah, she, she had a tumor. On, the, on her spine. And um, we had to do surgery on that shortly after she was born. And the surgery didn't go well. And so in effect, what she has is like the equivalent of spina bifida. And she's never going to walk. She's going to uh, have special needs for the rest of her life. She's going to be a very in, uh, a hands-on baby, child, adult, forever. And, I mean, you can imagine, it, this podcast was very moving because it's just this couple talking about the, the range of emotions as they're going through this. And, you know, the, the, the doctor turns around, the agency, the, the adoption agency says, you know, we, we could get you a healthy baby. And they're just wrestling with all of this. And there was this moment in that podcast where um, the husband or wife, as they're going back and forth, they chimed up and said, but this was our girl. Like, we already loved her. We already had the papers on her. We had been thinking about her. Like, that's her. And so finding out all this stuff about her, which, sure, like, may not be desirable, that, that doesn't change our love for her. And they took her home. And y'all... I think functionally some of us think that, that like God's gotten the secret papers on us. And that he's gotten this information and we're like, we think he's kind of whispering like, oh gosh, wish we wouldn't have taken her. Like, wish we wouldn't have taken him, this thing over here. And we're kind of wondering if God actually is going to keep us, and if he actually does love us. Paul can't say it any stronger. He's saying, what's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ? Can anything? No, nothing can. God has got every bit of information on you, past, present, and future, and He has set His effectual, full-orb, heartfelt, send His Son to die in your place, love for you. That's how much He loves you. He can't love you anymore. And some of you know that. And some of you are resting in that. And I hope that that in those dark days and in the hard moments that you would find your comfort and your solace in the fact that God really is that for you. There's nothing you can say. He just loves you. And for some of you, you need to hear that. You need to hear and know that God loves you in a way that nobody else can. Not your parents, not a boy, not a girl, not a spouse, not a child, not anybody. His love is unconditional. It is rich, it is free, it is big, and it is deep. 
And it's yours in Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would give us faith to, be, to hold Jesus and to receive Him as a Savior, as our Redeemer, as the lover of our souls. And I pray that you would give us the mind and the imagination to comprehend just how, just how deep that love is and just how wide it is. And let it overwhelm us.